Are you ready to become toxic person proof? Hey guys, Sarah K. Ramsey here to help you find love and success after a toxic relationship so you can design a life you're actually excited about living. Hello, wonderful. This is Sarah, and I'm here with Leslie Burnick, who is a fabulous author that I read years ago. She wrote The Emotionally Destructive Marriage. And tell us a bit, Leslie, about what an emotionally destructive marriage is and why it's so different than just falling out of love or someone you kind of don't really like that much anymore. That's such a great question, Sarah, because I think a lot of women who come to me kind of when they start coming out of the fog, they're shocked that there is such a thing as an emotionally destructive marriage. And I was very careful about choosing those words because I know you are. You did very well. You did very well. Yeah, because a lot of women, if they're not physically battered, they Uh would never self-identify as Uh being in an abusive relationship. But an emotionally destructive relationship is an abusive relationship. It's just not as easily seen. It's it's a lot of smoke and mirrors at times. But let me just, you know, there's a difficult marriage. Yeah, when there's a lot of external stressors, you have, you know, blended family, you have, uh, you know, COVID-19, you've got job loss, you've got military travel, you've got, you know, special needs kids. It causes a lot of stress on a marriage. It's a difficult marriage. You have personality differences, cultural differences, racial differences. Um, And I think... It requires a, a, a growing together and maturity to navigate a difficult marriage, but a difficult marriage doesn't necessarily have to be a destructive one. It's just difficult and you can grow and, and, and actually thrive together and build a stronger relationship even when things are difficult. There's also a disappointing marriage where, you know, you thought you were marrying Prince Charming and he's got some frog qualities and you're, you know, he's not as ambitious as you wanted him to be, or he's not as romantic as you wanted him to be, or he's not a great conversationalist. He's not destructive in any ways. He's not harmful to you, but he is just a little boring or (laughs) he doesn't clean up his messes like you'd like him to. And I think part of living with someone long-term, whether you're married to them or you're just a roommate in college, you have to learn to accept that people aren't perfect and everybody doesn't do things the way you think they should. And that's part of loving people and getting along. And so that's part of your own maturity in marriage of loving the person you're married to, not the person you thought you were married to. But a destructive marriage is even, it's different, it's deeper. And first, let me say that every one of us is capable of the patterns or the, not the patterns, but the behaviors that I'm going to talk about. Every one of us is capable of cursing a spouse out or lying or cheating or doing some horrible things. We're all capable of that. So don't hear me say that if your spouse does that once, you're in an emotionally destructive marriage. I don't know that yet. So the way I describe it, I know what you're trying to say. So there's a difference between a dog who bites you once and a dog who bites you daily. That's right. Good, good. Because when a dog bites you once, Uh if that dog loves you and you say, ouch, that dog knows that that was bad and they don't want to ever do it again. And so when you're in a relationship with someone and they hurt you, uh-huh. And you say, ouch, you know, why did you call me those names? Or I can't believe you lied to me or you cheated on me. Or why didn't you tell me that about your past? Whatever it is, a healthy person will take ownership for that and, and they will do what they need behavior. to do to repair that relationship, right? Yeah. And learn from their behavior. So and learn from their behavior. Yeah. And learn from their behavior. 
right? Right. So when we're looking at emotionally destructive relationships, we're looking at patterns that aren't stopped. Even when you speak up or say you don't like something, patterns of being obviously abusive with your words, you know, cursing you out and all those kind of things, but also patterns of like when you're completely controlled, like you're dominated and you don't have a voice or a choice to say no. And this is especially true in faith families where religion, especially uh, conservative Christianity or uh, maybe even Muslim families and other families where the head of the home is the one who gets to make all the choices and the wife is relegated to the status of a child or a slave. That's right there because what you just said was like, (laughs) okay. So one partner has all the choices. And all the control. And all the control. And I think that's really important to note if someone's looking on the outside, especially the church community is a marriage community. They are in fan of people staying together, right? There's a lot of biblical basis for that. And sometimes it's really difficult because they're going, well, he's saying this, she's saying this, who's really the toxic one, who's really at fault, but it's pretty easy to see, well, which partner had all the choices and who has the power and who has the power, right? That can be really important for maybe people who don't understand. Right. To so yeah, really the people help are discerning, you know, if it's the yes. pastor, if it's the counselor, if it's just the marriage mentor or even the in-law to be yes. able to see yes. Yes. who makes decisions about where money is spent, who gets to decide what school the kids go to. And if, and if the wife has no voice or no choice, I mean, yeah, she may be rebelling against all that fighting, resisting oppression is what she's doing. Right. And, you know, sometimes she can do that in a good way. And sometimes she might do it in a bad way, which makes her look like a co-abuser or even uh-huh. like the abusive one. Yeah. Well, and it's I going back to the dog example. If you have a dog in a cage that's been like kicked every day, And finally, that dog decides to throw open the cage. The dog's probably snarling a bit, right? And it didn't start out that way. It didn't start out that way. And, you know, this is a big, um, so when I work with women who come to me for help, you know, one of the things we talk about is, you know, if you want to have any two, two strategies, if you want to have credibility with your children or credibility with the people helpers, you've got to take care of you. Because when you get so depressed or you get so angry that you're just lashing out or so sick because of the toxicity in your household, which is real, um, then you're the one who looks like the problem. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. And I also want to go back to the point that you said about it's like a, having a child, like a parent-child relationship in a marriage rather than a partnership. That's right. And I think the Christian, um, I don't know a whole lot about the tenets of the Muslim faith, but I think the Judeo-Christian faith has a lot to do with submission and headship and, you know, I'm the authority over you. And, and it's sort of like, so I challenge women and men. I say, so when an adult woman gets married, she no longer has a brain. She no longer has a choice. She has to be relegated to the status of a child or a slave that, that that's what you're saying headship means. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches, but people who misuse the Bible or go to very conservative churches where that's really drummed in um, a woman who's in that place, she starts to feel confused. Like, oh my gosh, even God hates me. Even God is against me because I'm, you know, supposed to just be this flattened out object that someone can use for their services. And I don't really matter. Uh, and, and then she tries to get help and they say, be less selfish, right. die to self. Right. 
Yeah, our pastor just spoke on relationships this week, and I'm actually going to have to write him a little <laughs> email because, um, you know, he used that, like, die to self and let's be less selfish. And I agree with him. Our culture is full of selfish people, and you can't have relationships if each of you are vying for your own way. So there's a place to say, hey, I need to learn to give instead of always being entitled. But when you're asking an abused woman to keep trying harder, what that does is it only enables his selfishness. It enables his entitled mindset to think I deserve to treat you this way because of you not doing what I want. Which in some ways we don't realize what's happening, but in some ways you get to terms and think, is my role here on this earth to help a selfish partner be more, a better sinner, right? In the, in the, in the context of faith, the let, when we ask one partner to die to self, what we're saying is it's your job to let them become more selfish more domineering, more controlling, more better at avoiding the inner work they need to do to be a person of good faith, right? Which is the opposite of love. Love is acting in another person's best interest. You wouldn't give your, if you loved your young adult child who was on crack cocaine, you right. wouldn't exactly. give them exactly. your paycheck to go buy crack cocaine, would you? Yes. That's yes. not love. That's enabling someone to be destructive. And so that's why it's so important that we understand that true love is sacrificial, but that might be calling the police. It's not enabling someone to be more sinful. And I think I love the crack cocaine example because we don't tell people of the church to help feed addictions, right? That's like a, you know, if someone has addicted to drugs, you don't give them drugs. If someone is addicted to alcohol, you don't give them alcohol. And if someone's addicted to control, I, you know, people like you and I are working to push the conversation to say, And we also don't want to feed the addiction of control because it is as every bit as destructive. That's right. And and the Bible is very clear about the role of oppressors and the status of oppressed. So if you think about it that way in a marriage, when you're living with someone who is your oppressor, like when the Bible talks about slaves living with their oppressive masters, he's not talking about having a good relationship. He's trying to teach a slave how to endure it. But when you're in marriage and you got to kiss someone who's your oppressor and you got, you know what? It's like tough. It's tough. And, and, and so, you know, we can kind of giggle about it because we're at this other end, but, but I hope this is a message of hope, right? If you're in that and it is like, I am married to an oppressor. Yeah. And let me just say this, I I think God, if you look at the Bible, you know, I'm just reading through it again this year. And I think about all the verses that talk about safety, how God keeps us safe and values our safety. He valued Jesus's safety when Herod, the oppressor was going to kill baby Jesus. He didn't say just submit to the laws of the land, which was one of God's edicts, but he said, flee Joseph, take the baby and flee. And the Bible tells women and they're listening now that He values your safety, the prudency, danger, and take refuge. And God does not care more about the sanctity of marriage than he does about the safety and the sanity of the people in it. Mm -hmm. That is, I remember that point very clearly from your book when I was reading it. And that's, I mean, in some ways, do you feel as if the church has somewhat made marriage an idol in, in a way that's a little off base at this point? I think so. I think, you know, sort of like the Pharisees made the Sabbath kind of this. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Yes. Wait a minute. You've got this backwards. You know, I can't even heal someone on the Sabbath. What you wanted to stone me. You know, I can't do good on the Sabbath. And so we've made 
this marriage relationship. And it is important. And it's a part of our family structure, part of our uh, society structure. So I'm not demeaning that. I have a high value of marriage. I've been married 25 years. Um, But I think that we have said staying married at all costs honors God more than telling the truth about what's really going on in your house and by holding someone accountable, which are all biblical principles. And so we've asked Christian women to lie and pretend in order to keep their marriage together, at what cost? At the next generation learning this is okay? Well, and I think there is this view that I have to keep it together. I mean, there was somebody recently who is a a woman very much later in her life, married to like a missionary, (laughs) you know? And it's like, I have to stay together because somehow it like dishonors God if people outside the church see marriages fall apart within the church. You know, and I think there's, you know, there's always a smidgen of truth to this, you know, that it does dishonor God when people take marriage casually and break up marriages for no reason. But God did make provision for divorce for big deal reasons. And there are reasons that relationships get broken and can't be repaired because there is no repentance. There is no change. And you can't live with your enemy. You might have to love your enemy, but Jesus isn't asking you to kiss them or live with them. That's another great point. Yeah. You don't have to love you. We are called to love our enemy, not live with him. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell women, um, forgiveness is not the same thing as access. Like you can forgive someone, but if a Christian counselor or a biblical counselor or a marriage counselor are saying they have had no change in their behavior and you're supposed to give them access to you, that is not what the Bible says. Correct. You know, I, I I did a talk for pastors recently. I said, so let's say that someone in our congregation crashed into your car. They were texting and they didn't do it on purpose. They just crashed into your car. And there was a lot of damage in your car. And you were you came out and your neck was hurt and your head was cut. And I said, oh my gosh, pastor, I'm so glad it's you because love covers a multitude of sins and you need to forgive me. So I'll see you later. Bye. That's a great example. And there And no pastor would ever say that's okay. Not okay to me, not okay to anybody. But in marriage, somehow a husband can crash the family into the cliffs and say he's sorry and everything's supposed to be fine with no amends, no care for the impact of the harm that they've caused. And repentance says, I care about the harm I've caused and I will make amends and I will do what I need to do to show that I'm sorry. Not, I deserve you to forgive me and take me back no matter what. And I will do what I need to do. Those are action words. Those are not promises made. Well, and you need to see the action, not just the words, because, you know, the Bible talks about people who have smooth words, who make promises that they have no intention of keeping. And even John the Baptist said, prove by the way that you live, Mm -hmm. that you repented of your sin and turned to God, not just tell me what you're going to do, do it and show me. And then I'll start to think about that. Well, absolutely. And, you know, even there was some article that I came across and it was saying, put someone's name in with love. You know, Leslie is patient. Leslie is kind. Leslie keeps no record of the wrong. Leslie, uh, you know, rejoices in the truth and rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Love does not bend, bend over a million thousand different ways to hide the truth, right? 
Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that I think is so tricky in the Christian world, and maybe we can do a whole other podcast about this, is the teaching for Christian women to be loyal and faithful and submissive and kind and humble and long-suffering and forgiving, all the wonderful qualities. Of course, we don't say don't be that. But when we teach a woman to do that with no discernment or boundaries, then they are targets, they're magnets for takers and users. And then they're supposed to be forgiving and loyal and long-suffering. <laughs> so then it just perpetuates all their good virtues are now creating uh, situations where they're in perilous, toxic relationships and they don't have an escape plan because there's no virtues in the Christian library for Christian women to be strong, assertive, have good boundaries. Somehow those are oh, you're being, you know, you, you're too big for your britches or you're not being godly. Men can be that, but women can't. And I think we really need to help women understand that God calls us to some strong virtues as well. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she smiles at the future unafraid, describing the Proverbs 31 woman. Absolutely. Well, and women like Deborah. I mean, when you really start to look at the women who are named in the Bible, many of them are rule breakers. Mm-hmm right? Uh, Mary Magdalene. Um, uh, the, midwives, the Hebrew midwives who didn't listen to Pharaoh and said, you better drown all baby boys that are born. They said, we're not doing that. We're just not going to show up for the births. You know, they, they were defiant. Isn't that fascinating? When I really went back through and looked at the women of scripture, it was, they were almost Rahab. They were almost always breaking uh, Ruth. Mm-hmm. I mean, does anybody think it's just like, oh, you're just laying at the feet of this guy? It's like, I bet that was not a normal practice, <laughs> you know, <laughs> crawling into bed with men you aren't married to was not, it was somewhat of a rule breaker and, you know. And Rahab, Rahab lied. So Rahab was a prostitute. And when the spies from Israel came and she hid them because she knew that God was on their side, she hid them. And when her own people came to her and said, where are the spies? She said, they went that way. She lied in order and here's the, the beauty of God. In order to keep the spies safe, mm-hmm. Rahab broke one of the Ten Commandments. She lied. And yet, she's in the Hebrews Hall of Fame as a virtuous woman. And so sometimes we think, oh, I can't do that because I'm a Christian. But sometimes God calls us to do things in order for higher valued things. Like Jesus says, I'm going to break the Sabbath in order to heal somebody. Who wouldn't if you're own son or ox even fell into the pit, wouldn't you break the Sabbath to save their life? And so sometimes we get so legalistic, uh, God hates divorce. And so therefore I should just, like one woman said to me, I should be a sacrificial lamb and let myself get killed if that's what it costs me to serve God. And I'm like, God's not asking you to be the sacrificial lamb. He already provided one. That was Jesus. But there, there are so many women who think exactly what you just said. And that's where it is so heartbreaking because I see so many women trying to do the right thing, trying to do the right thing by their kids, trying to do the right thing by their church families, and trying to do the right thing by their marriages. That's what's so heartbreaking about this. And I think that's why it's so important that you do this podcast and we equip women, not just to say, oh, I'm done with you, jerk. That creates her own, you know, negative spiral in her life as well. But to really understand what is God calling me to suffer with? What is God calling me to sacrifice with? And and maybe sacrificial love means I stop lying for you. I stop covering for you and you're really mad at me and you go find someone else and I am going to suffer for telling the truth, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's 
biblical suffering. It's not that I suffer and just allow you to cheat on me and it's okay with no consequences because that's not good for me for sure, but it's not good for you. You're becoming more and more deformed. You're becoming more and more degraded as a human being. And that's not going to happen if I love you well. And you talked about cheating and within many church cultures, that's kind of like, okay, you can leave if they cheat, but you you've talked about some other things in your work, right? Like you can also get out of, you know, like God says it's okay to leave if what, uh, what are some other things other than cheating? Well, you know, again, I'm not going to be legalistic about it because I think each person has to do their own work in order to leave with a clear conscience because you always have to live with yourself, whether you live with an abusive person or not. Sometimes the most abusive person is in your own head, right? Because they're beating you up for what you've done or what you haven't done. So I think you have to do your own due diligence there. But I think that God designed marriage to be a safe and trusting relationship, not an abusive one. And so when that covenant of safety and trust has been broken, that has been symbolized by the adulterous relationship. So when God divorced Israel, for example, in Jeremiah, he calls her an adulteress, but she didn't actually have technical intercourse with false demons. And so, so when people make a covenant in marriage, it's a mutual covenant to love and to cherish and to honor and to be faithful. And when those covenant promises are broken repeatedly, and it may not be through sexual intercourse, it may be through uh, financial uh, uh, deceit. It may be through um, online emotional affairs. It may be through chronic pornography, unrepentant. It may be through lots of different things. But when you go to your brother and Jesus says, and you tell them you sinned against me in, in Matthew 18, and they refuse to listen, and you've brought evidence, look, this is covenant breaking stuff, and they continue to refuse to listen. Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, you're not in close fellowship with them anymore. You're not in close relationship. And how a wife decides to work that out, whether it's separating, whether it's divorce, whether it's, you know, if there's a legal separation she can do, however she needs to understand her relationship with that man is broken. She didn't break it. He broke it. She's just making it public when she says, I'm not going to pretend anymore. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And and I love the language just because God loves marriage does not mean God loves abuse. He has to love abuse. He hates abuse. Exactly. He, exactly. Love he hates abuse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And loves the people in the marriage more than the marriage, right? Is that That's right? And he, and he also loves the abuser. And so when we look at the oppressor, when we look at scripture and we think about the oppressed and the oppressor, you know, just read Psalms one through 10 talks a lot about the oppressed and the oppressor. God is always, always, always on the side of the oppressed. And he's always against the oppressor. But when the oppressor changes, when they're willing to, like Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is a great example. He was the oppressor. He was a tax collector. He oppressed the Jews, took their money. And when he came to Jesus, no one had to tell Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, now you have to do this, this, this. These are, these are the, show, show the fruits of repentance. Zacchaeus said, oh my gosh, I've hurt people. I'm going to pay back four times all the money I swindled from them. And I'm going to give half my money to the poor. Zacchaeus's heart changed from the oppressor. And from his the actions changed. His actions changed. Yes. He followed through. You could see it and say he didn't just make promises. He fed that family. He gave away the poor. He made changes in his tax collecting practices, right? Yes. Uh, and there was a pattern of it. It wasn't a one-time event. 
And so, and God loves Zacchaeus just as he was. And just like he, he loves your husband, he loves you. But he doesn't love your husband more than he loves you. And you're, for a woman, it's no one's going to steward you but you. And that's your responsibility. It's not your responsibility just to keep your marriage together. It's your responsibility to keep you together. And if you're taking Xanax and drinking vodka every night just so that you can be with your husband because otherwise you can't. Yeah, but it's not staying well. Use that term, staying well. Um, and, you know, we don't, that, that's a whole other podcast. We may have to get into that another time. Definitely check out your work on that because uh, that is not staying well. You know, that's surviving. It's not honoring God. It's not honoring God to stay in a marriage where you continue to be abused and you're losing your health, your mental health, your physical health, your children are sick. That, how does that honor God? nor does it honor the church community. And I do want to say that I've talked to several people outside of the church walls because within the church walls, it's almost the sense like, oh, if you do that, people will want to come to church and want to follow Jesus. And it's like, I have never heard anyone say, I really want to go to church because they let the, they let people, they let their men abuse their women. I had like, and we've got a lot of kids leaving the church because my church pastor, the church never did anything. And my dad was abusing my mom and they just yeah. said it was okay. Yes, yes, yes. So if there's any of that clarity in your head of like, oh, I've got to appear to be this way, that the people who have come to the church as adults and like, well, it's like, it's based in truth, not based in cover-ups. No one wants to go be more involved in churches because they're covering things up. Right. And obviously churches have covered up all kinds of abuse, sexual abuse of children, you know, marital abuse, other things, you know, uh, inappropriate relationships between parishioners and their pastors, abuse of power there, oppressors and oppressed. But there's a verse in Ephesians that I think might be helpful. And it says, um, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. And that's so scary for a Christian woman to actually expose. And I'm not saying put it on Facebook, but what I'm saying is don't cover up his abuse of your children, his abuse of power, his abuse of money, his abuse of pornography, um, and degrading you to the status of a, a an object. Um, I use this example of your husband loves you as a, he loves a cell phone. As long as you work and you do what he wants, you're good. <laughs> but if you have a need of your own, um, how dare you have a need? And if you don't work anymore, you refuse to work anymore, you're replaceable. And when you're in that kind of relationship, that dishonors God and it dishonors you. Absolutely. Leslie, thank you so much. Where can people find more about you? Tell them about your book. And um, yeah, they can find my book on Amazon. I have a website, leslieburnick.com. I've got a lot of YouTube videos. We're on Instagram. We have a lot of Facebook lives. Head over to our uh, professional Facebook page and um, come to a live. And we're doing a lot of trainings and just information because people need to hear the truth. God loves the truth and rejoices in the truth. And he calls us to love, but he doesn't call us to be blind to the truth. I love it. I love it. Leslie, thank you so much for helping us on our journey today to become toxic person proof. Hello, wonderful. This is Sarah. And I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I know that there was something that you can take away to help you get past the past, get real about the present or get serious about your future. And if I did my job, then hopefully it will help you with all three. If you are not in my Facebook group, 
finding love and success after a toxic relationship, then consider this your personal invitation from me. I'm there live, there's tons of support, and most importantly, tons more information to help you on your journey to become toxic person proof.